What up, what up? Jimmy Murray here with Frank Padalano, and we are the Cashflow Kings. The Cashflow Kings podcast discusses money, finance, mindset, and invest, investing with an emphasis on cash flowing real estate. Struggling through the intro today. <laughs> Thanks for joining the Cashflow Kings, and welcome to episode 11 Other People's Money. I'm Frank Padalano, and I'm here with Jimmy Murray to help you crush your goals in real estate. So guys, as always, as you're listening, if this is a podcast that hits home, teaches you something that you like, if you could just give us a share, give us a follow, subscribe on iTunes, we really appreciate it. Our goal is to continue to grow the Cashflow Kings tribe and provide a tremendous amount of value to you. So with that, we'll dive into OPM. So some folks may have heard of OPM before. And I can remember when I was younger, my dad used to talk about it. He said, Jimmy, if you really want to continue to grow your real estate portfolio, you need to focus on OPM. And I said, what is that? That's funny. So, uh, yeah, other people's money and other people's time are the main two ways for you to grow your business. So the way that most of us start in real estate investing in terms of OPM is bank money. So... If you go out, purchase a property, leverage bank financing, you are using other people's money. So the way that a bank works, this will be a side topic here, but you get to think about the way that a bank works. So when someone comes in and they open up a savings account and they put money in that savings account, the bank is going to make or try to make a spread on those dollars. So if they're offering a 1% interest rate on that money in the bank, they're going to work to go out and lend that as a mortgage at, say, 4 to 5%, and the bank makes the spread. And fundamentally, that is how banks should make money. Hold on, Jimmy. You mean they don't just put it like in an envelope up in the, uh, in the safe somewhere? Yeah, it's not all in the safe for Bonnie and Clyde to steal, right? <laughs> um, that, that, fundamentally, that is how banks should work, and that is how banks should earn a return. Now, banks are involved in numerous other things nowadays, but... On a fundamental basis, they should be lending based off the savings accounts that they have and generating the return of, of being in business by the mortgages that they lend on. So at the most elementary level, everyone if you or most people, if you own a home, you've already used other people's money. Well, to be honest with you, uh, even outside of real estate, people use other people's money all the time. We just don't call it other people's money. They use it through credit cards, they yeah. use it through car loans. We're always, uh, a lot of times people are borrowing, like we joke about robbing Peter to pay Paul, but yeah. not like that. But basically, people are, people are borrowing money on their credit card every day. Right. So, as we, as we dive into this topic in this podcast, I'd like to call out the separation between leveraging other people's money for assets and for liabilities, Right. So as Frank talks about using OPM for credit cards and for automobiles, those are liabilities. Now you can argue if you you know you need to use your car to get to your job or whatever else, but at the end of the day, a car, a truck, those are all liabilities. They don't generate a return for you. They may help you generate income, but typically they do not generate a return. When we're discussing other people's money, we're often talking uh, based on the Robert Kiyosaki rich dad method. Okay, good debt versus bad debt. Now, Absolutely. I talk about Dave Ramsey a lot too. I mean, I love Dave Ramsey. He's anti-debt, anti 
But um, I have a hard time, and I struggle with that all the time because I'm more of the uh, Robert Kiyosaki method. Good debt, bad debt. Now, the bad debt would be, like you said, buying those liabilities. You know, buying that uh, boat or that car or, or whatever it takes. And when you have it as, when you're borrowing money like that, you can easily borrow more than you should. Absolutely. If you know what I mean. Banks would love to lend you more than what they think that you can afford to pay back, back just to uh, have fees and everything else. Because That's a really good point. Because just because you get an appro- a pre-approval letter from a bank or a mortgage broker saying that you can buy a $500,000 house doesn't mean you should buy that $500,000 house. And that's where a lot of people get stuck. So it's funny you say that because uh, when we were buying our first house um, at the top of the market last cycle, um, they told us that we could easily spend four hundred and fifty, dollars uh, And we're like, there's no way. Right. Because I didn't want to have that mortgage forever. And I didn't, I didn't want to have any mortgage forever. No, I've changed my perspective on it a little bit. But it definitely was the home we're going to live in. So it's more of, it's not really that asset. So, so Frank, I, I think that you're probably a master of using OPM at this point. And I think you talk about how you have 17 mortgages. So you talk about overcoming in the beginning, getting a mortgage amount less than the 450 than you approved for. How'd you overcome that hurdle? How'd you get comfortable using OPM? Ooh, that's a tough one. Throwing a curveball at me here. Yes. Uh, I guess the, the big thing is when you're buying an asset, you're collecting some type of return on the investment. So it doesn't hurt you as much. Okay, right. when you're buying that first house or when you're buying that car, yeah, that car, you're generating income by driving to work, but I mean, you're spending directly, um, you're just spending money off of that. When if you're buying an asset, like the real estate that we have that we rent out, if you think about it, I try to keep that, especially since they're in LLCs, it's completely separate from my own personal money. Right. So the mortgage gets paid first before I would collect any kind of uh, distribution. That's awesome. That's awesome. So, um, and one of the key points that Frank touches on there is I would say when you do leverage OPM to, to pick up a rental property, don't take distributions. I think that's where a lot of people get stuck as well, right? So you buy an asset and obviously you're buying that asset to generate some type of return. And off the bat, you're not typically earning return that first year, maybe 12 to 18 months as you stabilize the asset where most folks buy things. Now, two, three, five, ten 10 years down the road, you are going to be earning return. But the best use of that return is reinvesting in another asset. It's funny you say that because in the first 10 years of our growth, the only thing, we did take money out, but we only took out money once. And that was to buy a, uh, a van when we were having twins. Fair enough. So besides that, we uh, we did not pull any money out in the first 10 years. Now, at the same point, not everybody's going to do that. I mean, I was doing this as a part-time thing. So if, if you're just starting out and you're going to make real estate your life and your business, you will have to take distributions. You will have to pay yourself in order to um, survive. But that doesn't, like I said before, when you buy that car, I mean, you can buy a $5,000 car or you can go out and buy a $50,000 Escalade. Right. I mean, with other people's credit and money, you're like, oh, what's the big deal? Yeah. But that does hurt you. You know, you got to try to, um, you know, from how you, uh, how you live your life and been spending money, you're not out there blowing at all. You know, you might not all the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're not talking about the time you rented the Lambo, but still, <laughs> we're going to leave that one alone. <laughs> um, you no, know, to give an example, though, uh, this is completely off topic. But what the heck? It is about other people's money. 
Um, right now, um, I'm buying into a syndication deal. Yep. And I mean, we're buying, it's a pretty big property, and it's a property that actually is less than, uh, it's only like 70% occupied right now. And uh, they told us ahead of time, they said, you're not, you're, if you get a distribution, which there is a risk not to, but you should get distributions. They said, you're not going to get a distribution in the first 18 months. And I'm like, that's fine by me. I'm not doing this investment to get an immediate distribution. Now, sometimes I want to get an immediate distribution. But, you know, if you spread your money around, you're going to have some that you expect. And some, you can take a risk and, and not expect it as much. Absolutely. So getting back to kind of how we started this. When you purchase assets, you absolutely want to leverage OPM. It's all about gaining proper leverage, and that's what's gonna to lead to your success in real estate investing. So most folks like to leverage the Burr method, and I think we've talked about this on some previous podcasts. So the Burr method is buy, rehab, rent, refinance, repeat. So at this stage of the market, thinking about appropriate leverage, some folks may be buying assets that they're able to refi out of that they do not have appropriate leverage only because the market is pricing these assets at a higher level. So that's something to keep in mind as well. So even though you may catch that higher appraised value, you may be able to clear that bird deal with no money into the deal, you may be over levered in that asset. And I think that's where some people get stuck as well. But I'm gonna circle back to the, the point that I used to open that up. Leverage is literally essential to your success. How are you gonna get better leverage on your dollars in the right proportion in order to continue to grow your portfolio? How I did it, house hacking, right? How Frank did it, a little bit different, but figure out where you can gain that appropriate leverage in order to continue to grow your portfolio as you find fit. There you go. So the main thing I want to talk about today is like, what are the different types of other people's money? So the, the main one you talked about first was bank financing. Now with bank financing, especially if you're buying a uh, rental property and say you're not going to live there. Right. Then they're going to expect usually about 25% down. Correct. You yeah. Know? And depending on the bank, there could be, I mean, the terms on a non-owner occupied multifamily are going to be dramatically different than owner occupied and then particularly if you go five plus units there's there going to be many other different factors that you need to pay attention to in order to gain the right leverage on the asset i mean we can skip the house hacking because we did that on a previous episode i think it was episode nine but you know going with going with this if you do traditional bank financing you can buy the first one and then you can buy the second one and you're going to need to put down about 25 percent down yeah and uh you can probably do that like Two more times, and right. then when you get to that four number, you start to hit a little bit of a wall. Yeah, so that that's kind of the the big pre-qualifier when you, um, and it's typically like four FHA mortgages, right? Because the bank may It doesn't claim, have to be just FHA, but... Right, so, so that's the next hurdle that you have to clear, and this is where, I'm not sure if we might have talked about this, but the difference between um, essentially a mortgage broker and a portfolio lender... So I have, I have that. Oh, so I'm, I'm jumping ahead on the podcast notes here. So I'm not going to crash the party. So we'll have to dive into that in a second. Um, so I think we've got traditional financing down in terms of OPM. The second big one that Frank and I want to talk about, because most folks may be flipping properties or getting into a bird deal using hard money. So hard money is asset-based lending. Typically on hard money, you are going to pay points at closing 
and then you're going to pay a 12 plus percent interest rate. Why don't you discuss what points at closing actually means? Absolutely. So if you buy a property with hard and you're going to use hard money, which most investors, when they come into a flip opportunity and tell the seller that they're going to use cash, they are most typically using hard money. Sometimes they're using their own money, but a lot of folks, when they say cash, it's going to be a hard money deal. So they're going back to their lender. Someone is going to lend them that money like cash, and they're going to look at the deal high level. They're not going to go through underwriting like would typically happen when you go to a bank. So if you get into that, that property and you make an offer at 100000 say, hey, I'm going to buy it in cash, you go back to finance it with hard money, most folks are paying between two to four points. So two to four points on $100,000 is going to be between 2000 to 4000 And that's buying you the opportunity to use that hard money. And then with that, through the duration of the loan, you're going to have to make monthly interest payments. Most typically, hard money incurs interest-only payments throughout the duration of the loan. Hard money could have a term of anywhere from 6 to 12 months. They're betting on you stabilizing that asset and returning their capital so that they can invest in another deal. I saw something nasty on Facebook yesterday Uh about this. And this is a, a warning to especially some of your newbies out there. That it reminds me of the credit card companies that sometimes some of these hard money lenders will approve a deal they don't think that you're going to be able to pull off because they want the property. Right. Because, so think about this a, a typical hard money lender, you buy that property for 100000 right? They're going to require you put down 30 and they may require that you incur some of the rehab costs as well. They may go 50 50 with you on the rehab costs. You spend the first 10 rehab, they'll give you the second 10. But Typically, there's a very high margin of safety. So if you go belly up, you get hit by a bus as you're walking across the street, they can pick up that asset and they can now make money flipping that asset. Most hard money lenders are going to have the experience and the background to do exactly what you are trying to do. They just have more capital than they're able to actively invest themselves. So this helps them gain more leverage. Let's take take a step back to uh, the 12%. Because I bet you there's a lot of investors that who haven't used hard money before that are absolutely freaking out about the concept of paying 12, 13, 16% interest. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a lot of money. But this is going to gain you the opportunity as an investor to you know, make that money on a flip. This is how most flippers are going to fund their deals. So to go with that, I have no problem paying 12%. I actually have two loans right now at 12%, I think. So what happens when you get really good at this? Do you still pay 12% and two oh, points at closing? Heck no. I got a bunch of loans at like 9 and 10. See that? We switch over to private money. So here's where, here's an interesting topic where Frank and I agree, and, and most folks or most other investors may not, but there's a definitive difference between hard money and private money. You're still going to be paying higher interest rates, but typically private money is built off of more of a relationship. So I know that my business partner in line property management and I have a private relationship with a private money lender where we're funded at 9% in one point, which it's an, it, they're incredible rates. Think of private money as, as your boys who uh, you've already done a deal or two with and they're willing to take the risk with you and they know how well you're doing with real estate. And a lot of times they're going to require less of a down payment so that they can have more money in play 
and fund more deals for you. Oh, it's, yeah. It's more of a streamlined process because you've built that relationship over time. I have private money deals with no money done. Right. Yeah. You yeah. probably do too. Because you've built that street cred. And that's what it takes. So off the jump, if you're getting into that bird deal, hard money is going to be the best route. But as, but as you begin to develop your portfolio of things that you've done, right? So I would say keep track of the things that you've done. Take before and after pictures. Lay out how you bought the deal, where you want to take it. And then you almost have a little pitch book. When you start to find that you know uncle with a couple of dollars on the sideline at the 4th of July cookout, that's how you get into private money. It's so funny to say that. I'm going to tell a quick story. Uh, we have uh, a few assets. Uh, I have a partner on it. And uh, there's a guy that's his uncle. Now, I don't know if it's really his uncle or not, but it's basically a guy that has money. And my partner negotiates deals with him. And uh, we borrow money at, at a nice interest rate, yep. but it's nowhere near hard money and we don't have to worry about it. And he, you know, when we've sold out of those deals, he starts to get a little nervous. He's not getting that return. So right. he's hoping that we go after that next deal right. pretty quickly so he can keep up his, uh, you know, ROI. Right. So I would say for, for those sitting in the corporate world hoping to become a corporate dropout, your best private money lenders are the folks sitting in the cube farm around you. That's right. I used I dropped the term cube farm. I wanted to drop that one for a while. So work the cube farm. Figure out who has capital. Maybe you have a VP of finance that you work with. They probably have some money stashed aside. So when you break out of that corporate cube and you're able to go out and become an successful investor, they're going to want a cool story to tell at the water cooler about, hey, this guy used to work here. And now I also earn a great return from his real estate investments as he's earning money. And it's something cool for them to talk about. And that's another way to find private capital. So, uh, we talked about private money. We talked about hard money. Uh, you were going to mention something about going directly to a bank or dealing with a mortgage lender. Yeah. So, here's the difference, guys. So, if you are looking to become a serious real estate investor, you want to build relationships. Relationships to attract private money or relationships with banks, particularly on those bird deals, so that you can refinance out in a streamlined manner. So, Locally, we've grown relationships with banks, um, business relationships, as well as commercial lending relationships, where the, the underwriting process is a lot cleaner because they're familiar with us. Now, if we go out to, you know, I'm trying not to bash any mortgage brokers here, but there are large national chains of, of mortgage brokers, and they're going to sell you the same products. Now, there may be one mortgage broker that makes the experience cleaner than the other, but the product set that they can sell is going to be very similar. There's a bunch of them. There is going to be nothing related to relationship there. Now, on the flip side of that, if you find a portfolio lender, those are the banks that you want to grow a relationship with. So the difference between a mortgage broker and a portfolio lender is that the mortgage broker, once they underwrite your loan, is going to sell that back to Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, in order to get the capital back to underwrite another mortgage. They're interested in that plus one transaction. They don't care who you are, where you're from, where you're headed. They just want to get another transaction done because that's how they make their money. And there's nothing wrong with that. On the flip side of that, a portfolio lender is going to be interested in investing in your future in a sense, right? They're going to want to build that relationship with you. If they know that you're that young up-and-comer or someone that's trying to build a portfolio, they want to build that relationship so that every time you need money, you go to them. Are you ready to laugh? 
Here we go. All right. So I've actually never worked with a pure mortgage broker. That's actually really interesting. Yeah. Because I've always dealt with uh, portfolios. Um, I Every bank, and we're using like four or five banks now. But I mean, I have a relationship that I, I have their cell phone numbers of any one of their commercial lenders. And I can call them up and negotiate a deal right there. Now, a cool story related to that. Um, we bought that nine unit last year. And uh, we actually had two different banks fighting for fighting for us. So that's the biggest thing. So once you get established, maybe you pick up a partner who has a relationship with one portfolio lender and you have one with another. Now in these larger deals, when you go to take them down, you can have the commercial lending departments competing so that you as the investor win. And that's the really cool point that you're going to get to. I hope that all of you guys get there. So yeah, so that's uh, what, what we call commercial mortgages. Right. Now, maybe you should talk about the difference because like, when we hit that four, we talked about four mortgages, you hit a first wall. Yep. Um, what's the difference between four mortgages, 10 mortgages, and 15 or 20 mortgages? Yeah, so maybe you can talk to that a little bit more than I can. Yep. But so so that first wall, like we said, is, is four mortgages. And a lot of banks start to give you a hard time because they start to worry because they can't sell as easily when you're, when you're, four, when you're four mortgages or more. So we had to start looking at different relationships and finding different people. So then, if you're still trying to uh, work with the traditional residential lending departments, the major wall you hit is 10. About, yeah. uh, I don't think you can get a traditional residential uh, non-owner-occupied mortgage if you have more than 10. Now, the other number that I've heard is some of these local relationship-based lenders, it may not be the number of mortgages, but the size of the lending relationship. So some of them may cap it, I call it $5 million. I can remember sitting down, and Frank has a few mortgages with this company, so I'll have to talk about this offline. But I can remember sitting down with one of the guys who ran the commercial lending group, and he said, hey, Jim, we're going to have a problem when you get up to five. I said, great, can't wait to get there. And he honestly, the guy was okay, but you know, he didn't, he didn't give me as enough time as I thought I should. And I was really looking to build a relationship with that portfolio lender. And I can tell you that myself and none of my clients have worked with that lender. Oh, interesting. So I do want to hear what it is. Offline. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So besides, besides the number though, and besides the loan size, you have to realize that they start getting a little tighter on some of the terms. Right. Um, they start to worry a lot more about debt to income ratios. Yes. They start to worry more about debt service coverage ratios. So maybe, let's talk about that. So when you start to take down deals five plus units and you're leveraging OPM in terms of commercial lending, they're going to start to look at a ratio called the debt service coverage ratio. And typically the number that they look for is 1.2 for a debt service coverage ratio. So... Just to pause right there, uh, you see this a lot more on the commercial lending side. You do see it on the uh, residential side as well. And uh, I will talk about debt service coverage ratio, but when we talk about the commercial side, there's basically no limit on the number of mortgages you can have. Okay? Right. So after our first few, everyone since then, we've, been, we've only looked to uh, commercial portfolio lenders. And why is that? Because it was, oh, well... We always owned everything as an LLC, too. Sorry, I'm throwing you as a curveball. So it's all income-based lending to a certain extent. And that's where we get the debt service coverage ratio. Because as long as you are providing or generating the income from that asset to cover the bank's risk, they'll lend on anything. So you just defined what debt service coverage ratio means. Basically, if you are generating uh, enough rent 
that you're generating 25% more rent than what the uh, mortgage payments are over the course of a year, then you're all set. We're talking about net income. Yes. So after expenses. After all the expenses. And then covering your mortgage payment. Because strange things happen. I mean, so for example, you're not going to be 100% occupied. No. <laughs> no. 365 days. If you are, your, your rents are too low and you spawn a special unicorn or something. So I have, I have a client and uh, I produced um, a week of vacancy on a five-unit property last year while increasing the rent roll three to 400 a month. That's he was, awesome. He was giving me a hard time saying that I needed to decrease the vacancy even more. And I said, a week of vacancy on a five-unit? I think I've done pretty well. So over the course of two years managing that building, they only incurred five weeks of vacancy. Is it a hot neighborhood? Is there, are the rents too low and they got lucky? What's the deal? Yeah, so the rents were initially low, but they take great care of their tenants, so they don't leave, right? So I can remember at year end, they said, hey, listen, you've made us a ton of money. Why don't you go put granite countertops in every single unit? I said, excellent. What? Let's <laughs> roll. But now the tenants see that we're taking care of the building. I mean, we put in a patio set outside, right? So we're taking great care of the tenants. So as we start to put, it, it is a hot neighborhood. It's on the east side of Providence by Brown. It's a hot neighborhood. But now the tenants see that we're taking care of them. They see that you know living costs and rent expenses are going up. So they're okay when we bump rent. You know, Still, one month. week is ridiculously low. You guys can't expect that. Usually, you expect uh, you know a five percent vacancy rate over the course of a year. I think that five well five percent for a stabilized asset. Yeah, absolutely. But if you're getting to more of a distressed asset and you're trying to build out that pro forma you probably want to target a higher number. So yeah, I know 10%, stuff like that. That's what's also with the syndication that we're buying right now is at 30%. Yeah, so I know that, and it, we're a little bit off topic here, but typically in my models, I budget 8%. Now, the first year is always going to be higher, Absolutely. and hopefully you can pull it in. So I know in my personal portfolio, I'm currently managing at about one to two months of vacancy a year per unit. So in the 8% model, if you're budgeting 8% vacancy, on any pro forma that you're pulling together, that's one month per year per, per unit. unit. Yeah, it's perfect. So you, if 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 you can't meet those guidelines, then I think you're in the wrong game. I think that that's an absolutely conservative estimate once you have a stabilized asset, and should line you up for success. So back to uh, go over debt service coverage ratio, just to say it one more time. You should be generating 1.25 times your. Uh, your net income. So after you take out all the normal expenses, and that's just to cover the bank to make sure that based on paper, you're going to generate about 25% more than all your expenses. So the bank's making money and you're making money too. Oh, yeah. You said 1.2, by the way. I, I, I usually like to use 1.25, but either yeah. one. I've seen... So the banks have gotten more aggressive. The market's gotten better. That's true. The banks have gotten more aggressive because there are more banks competing. Well, not only that, but because the prices are going up, it's harder to get to that 1.25 number, and they're realizing that. Right. So if they really want to do any business, right. they, they have to bring it down to 1.20 instead of yep. 1.25. Absolutely. So let's see. What else we got? Oh, another way to uh, use other people's money, especially if you're starting out, find a partner with money. Okay? There's nothing wrong with partnering. Actually, I have a lot of deals in which we're partnering. And uh, what you do is that if you don't have a ton of money, and uh, they have money, but they don't have the time. You use their money and your time and make money. Yeah, so I have a great story here. 
Um, I was working my way through the Rhode Island Real Estate Investors Group. And the way that I funded my first two flips was through a private money guy. He said, hey, rather than you wholesaling me these deals, I have the money, you have the knowledge. I have 400 Gs. Why don't I just buy them from you and then I'll fund the, fund the entire process and you get 50% of the net on the backside. I said, that's a great idea. Let's do it. Right? So finding a money partner is a great strategy. Well, we have so many people. This I call it a three-stool approach. You need to have knowledge and experience, time, and or money. I if, love that. Yeah. Yeah, three-legged stool approach. Yep. Yeah. So if you if you're you need to be strong in at least one of those. If you're strong in at least one of those, you can you can make this work. Absolutely. So last last one of these other people's money, unless we uh, find a surprise as we're going through. <laughs> Self-directed IRAs. So here's the other one for the potential corporate dropout or someone who's changed roles a couple times uh, across companies. You can roll in old, and this is probably a great topic to talk about on a, on a future podcast, but you can roll money from an old 401k into a self-directed IRA. In that self-directed IRA, there are certain custodians that allow you to do this. If you go to the major brokerage houses, they probably don't have the ability to accomplish a self-directed, but there are specialty uh, custodians. Well, what we'll say is that there are there are a few of them out there. We don't want to name one specifically, but if they want to... Uh, if they want to sponsor our podcast, then sure, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, what I was going to say is if someone wants to send us a, a DM or a private message, we could probably link them up with two or three different ones. Absolutely. And then from there, they will give you the ability to lever that money from an old 401k and use it to buy assets. So if you want to buy bars of gold and store them somewhere, you can. If you want to buy a restaurant, I read a story about a guy who bought a vodka distillery and turned 200 grand from an old 401k into 2.1 million, or just purchase your everyday run-of-the-mill real estate. Self-directed IRAs are a great opportunity to lever OPM. I've had three people lend, lend to me through their self-directed IRAs. That's awesome. Yeah. So guys, that's been our podcast on other people's money. To wrap up, the five or four that we covered were um, private money, hard money, bank financing, commercial financing, finding a partner with money, or self-directed IRAs. There you go. That sounded like more than four, but I'm sure. Hey, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was counting all out of my fingers. It was a little bit more. Um, so we appreciate you guys joining in, listening to our podcast. If you liked it, give us a share. Follow us on Instagram at the Cash Flow Kings. And we look forward to, to providing more information on upcoming podcasts. Don't forget to check us out on Instagram as well. The Cashflow Kings is the handle. And feel free to send us a DM and we can link up. The Cashflow Kings program is for basic entertainment purposes only. We do not give official legal, tax, or investment advice. Each person should consult their own advisors prior to making any financial decisions.